Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July. Happy, safe, relaxing. Uh, and now we enter the dog days of summer for the next couple of months. Today we're going to do something that makes me a little bit nervous because it's a big, big, big topic. And we're going to try to dissect it as best we can. Let me preface where we're going with with these comments. In our current world, there's lots of places to get news. There's lots of places to get information about the drug crisis, fentanyl, the war on drugs, Mexican cartels, right? There's news channels, there's blogs, there's social media, there's some great sources on YouTube, there's some terrible sources on YouTube. You know, so we get lots of information. But this podcast, since day one, has tried to focus less on the what, what happened, but more on the why. Why do things happen? And in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten a lot of questions from people relating to one topic in particular, and that centers around the Mexican government. And it's questions of why doesn't the government do more? Why uh, is the government apparently corrupt? You know, questions along those lines. And so today we're going to try to start, at least start, a discussion of the Mexican government, the kind of atmosphere of corruption in Mexico. And our focal point is going to be less on the history, you know, history per se, but looking to today and understanding how history has influenced Mexico, how it has influenced um, Mexico's feelings about America, um, and how that then translates into the relationship between the Mexican government and the cartels today. As you've probably figured out if you've listened to many podcasts, and anybody who knows me will verify this, I get geeked out on things that other people may find pretty boring. And one of the things that I get geeked out on, and I like to to try and keep up on and read about is game theory in the political science international relations context. And game theory, in short, you know, is using a scientific approach to try to understand the decision-making processes of leaders, leaders of nations, leaders of political parties, leaders of corporations, leaders of cartels, and using that methodology to understand decisions that were made and maybe more importantly, to understand decisions that may be made. How are those decisions made? What influences are there? What coalitions need to be built in order to have a decision go forward to be acted upon? And I think as we spend this episode and maybe others looking at the Mexican government, the history of the Mexican government, elements of corruption, maybe we can try to get a better sense of why certain actions have or have not taken place based on the history of the Mexican government. Okay. So that's where we're going to go. Now, one last thing. The history of the Mexican government could be a semester or year-long college course, graduate-level course, and we're going to try and do it in 45 minutes or so. Uh, and I say or so because I really don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out together. Um, so this is by nature truncated, but what I've tried to do is combine a lot of information 
And, you know, you can get you can start in the Encyclopedia Britannica online and go through rabbit holes for forever, you know, of hyperlinking to different topics and things. But what I've tried to do is consolidate some information so that some of you who may not know the history of the Mexican government, understand the politics within Mexico, get a better understanding. So we're going to do a couple of things to start with. We're going to look at the PRI, the primary party in Mexican history, at least since about 1929. We're going to look at three Mexican presidents in particular, and you'll see why we picked those ones. Then we're going to look at kind of the future, the immediate future in Mexico. We also um, get lots of questions, lots of discussion about corruption in Mexico And believe it or not, there are a couple of groups that really study corruption in world governments. And I found some very, very interesting studies and facts relatively recent about corruption in Mexico. And we're going to talk about those as well. We're going to play it a little bit by ear uh, and see if we get to all of that today or if this ends up being a two-parter So um, bear with me as we get to the time. I don't want to go much past an hour if we get that far. Just make it easy for everybody. Uh, Listening to me for 60 minutes ought to be plenty enough. So going to the beginning, let's talk about Mexico's government. We're going to talk about it since 1929. Okay, The... Institutional Revolutionary Party, Partido Revolucionario Institucional, that's probably pretty close to the pronunciation, which is the PRI, P-R-I, is the most dominant um, political party in Mexico over the last hundred years. Okay? It was founded in 1929. You get a little bit of dispute about that, but we're going to say that it that, 1929 is the right time. And its power was virtually unchecked and interrupt, uninterrupted in Mexico for 71 years. That is from about 1929 to 2000. It first was known as the PNR, the National Revolutionary Party. Then for a little while, it was also known as the PRM, Party of the Mexican Revolution, really became known as the PRI in about 1946. We could go through a lot of the history, but we're going to... we're going to truncate it, okay? So I want to I want to keep the focus on kind of those elements of Mexican history that affect the cartels and and the drug trade today. But I want to start real quick. We have 1929, where there was a, um, a you had the Mexican Revolution, and then the PNR. Again, that's the forebearer of the PRI, was founded by somebody by the name of Plutarco Elias Calles, who um, was the self-proclaimed Jefe Maximo, Supreme Chief of the Mexican Revolution. As they said at the time, the party, the PNR at that time, was created with the intent of providing a political space in which all of the leaders and combatants of the Mexican revolution could participate and um, solve the crises in, in Mexico. There had been a president elect Alvaro Obregón who was uh, assassinated before he took office in 1928. Uh, Calles himself um fell into some political disgrace and issues, and he actually was exiled in 1936. But as we said earlier, he started a party that really lasted and ruled uh, for, uh, you know, the next 71 years or so. 
So the pre basically had um, unlimited absolute power in Mexico for almost all of the 20th century. Uh, Until 1976, in addition to always being the party of the president of Mexico, until 1976, all members of the Mexican Senate belonged to the PRI. All state governors were from the PRI until 1989. So to say that they were the party is not an exaggeration. And I've got a quote from... uh, a Peruvian uh, writer that I'll I'll get to in just a second that you'll like. Look, there is no doubt that the PRI um, used elements of repression, used elements of co-option, used elements of corporatism, used elements of manipulation of the media, manipulation of currencies in order to hold on to power, okay? There were at least three presidential elections that were accused of having irregularities or fraud. Those would be in 1940, 1952, and most importantly, 1988, and we'll talk about 1988 um, in a second. One of the things that's interesting about the PRI is if you start to look at its ideologies. And the ideologies changed dramatically over time, not necessarily because of the party itself, but because each time a new president came in, you know, was elected or came through the process of the PRI, but each time one was elected, that president could shape the course of politics and ideologies in a fairly unique way. Um, and I know that's bad grammar, so forgive me. One of the things to keep in mind is under the Mexican Constitution, presidents are elected for one six-year term. Okay? During the 1980s or so, the pre as it's now constituted kind of took shape mostly characterized as being kind of center right you had presidents that were concerned with and we will talk about these in more detail but the privatization of state run companies to some extent closer relations with the catholic catholic church and more of an embrace of free market capitalism for better or for worse. In um, in about 1989, some left-wing members of the party abandoned the PRI and formed the Party of the Democratic Revolution, Partido de la Revolución Democrática. All right, here's the quote that I, I really like. So this actually is from 1990, but a Peruvian writer by the name of Mario Vargas Losa, he described Mexico under the pre-regime as being the, quote, perfect dictatorship. And here's what he says. I don't believe that there has been in Latin America any case of a system of dictatorship which has so efficiently recruited the intellectual milieu, bribing it with great subtlety. The perfect dictatorship is not communism, nor the USSR nor Fidel Castro, the perfect dictatorship is Mexico because it is a camouflaged dictatorship. Isn't that a great line? Because it is a camouflaged dictatorship. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but um, Pre lost the presidency in 2000, continued at that time to hold on to um, most of the state government's Fairly influential at the local level still. 2006, they had a ter- disaster. That was a horrible year. Um, but but um, pre continued to you know stick it out. They uh, they again controlled a lot of the local apparatus, 
And even though Roberto Madrazo, who was their candidate in 2006, not only lost the election, he finished in third third place and did not carry a single state, not one. But, but they won um, a lot of seats at the municipal and state levels. They won um, dramatic gains in the Senate and in the legislature in 2009. And in 2012, it regained the presidency with the election of Enrique Peña Nieto. But Peña Nieto's administration um, was beset with um, a number of issues, corruption scandals, crime rate, um, and in uh, 2018, Jose Antonio Mead was um, their candidate for president. He lost badly, far worse than even in 2006. And as we'll talk about in a minute, you can see the at the national level, at least, the pre's influence is much, much, much less than it was. Okay, um, we are going to, let's see, I want to, I'm doing this on the fly a little bit of thinking about how much we want to talk about. Um, one of the things that, again, talking about how important it was, the pre-party, that is, um, it said earlier in 1989, the PRI lost the gubernatorial election in Baja California Norte. That was their first gubernatorial loss ever, ever, which is really just amazing if you think about it. All right. We are, um, I guess we'll go to 2000. Let's, let's move all the way up to 2000. So uh, the president at that time was Ernesto Zedillo, who was a cabinet secretary and he succeeded uh, Salinas, who we'll talk about in just a minute. Zadio, um, you know, did a number of things. His um, he was won comfortably, but it was the narrowest election for a pre-presidential candidate ever. He uh, instituted several reforms, but um, political corruption still remained. At the midterm elections, the PRI, for the first time ever, lost a majority in the House of Deputies. First time ever. And um, in 1999, before the next presidential election, he didn't nominate his successor. Basically, up until this time, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit more, but up until this time... You know, they didn't really have the primaries like we have. They would just have whoever the outgoing president would say, I want so-and-so to be the leader of the PRI, and they're going to run for the presidency. And it was almost a, you know, hand-picked successor. 1999, Zadillo said, nope, not going to do that. And so PRI held kind of a primary at that point in time, and they had a candidate uh, by the name of Francisco Labastida, who lost the presidency to Vicente Fox, who was of the National Action Party, the PAN, P-A-N. Okay. Want to talk about three Mexican presidents in particular, and you're going to see why based on the dates. So, Miguel de la Madrid Hurtado was a pre-president, 59th president of Mexico, serving from 1982 to 1988. Um, de la Madrid is, um, is interesting. He came in after um, Jose Lopez Portillo. And most people kind of say he inherited an economic mess. There was a huge financial crisis. 
severe economic issues as a result of the drop in oil prices and um, an external debt. Mexico had actually defaulted on some of its debt right before De La Madrid um, came into office. So he started a reform on economic policies and really a switch to what we can call neoliberal policies, Um, market-oriented, austere measures to um, have deep cuts in public spending, a variety of things to try to get out of this economic rut that he had somewhat inherited. The the administration of De La Madrid also is famous for something that was referred to as the moral renovation campaign. Their goal, allegedly, was to fight government corruption. And um, as a result of this effort, several members or top officials who had been in the Lopez Portillo um, administration were arrested. De La Madrid had a number of issues. Um, In particular, they were um, heavily criticized, heavily criticized um, for their response to the massive 8.0 earthquake in Mexico City that hit Mexico City in 1985. And then his success, the succession, Coming in the 1988 election, which we'll talk about in just a second, was a disaster as well. Uh, De La Madrid is interesting because he had no political experience, had not been elected to any office before he ran for the president of Mexico. He was fortunate at that time as there were no strong opposition candidates, so he was really going to win no matter what. But again, his campaign... And his administration really steered a new direction for Mexico that I think you can trace from today right back to him. Uh, Federalism, strengthening of the legislature, strengthening of the judiciary, um, and he won huge, huge. Um, He was, as I said, market-oriented, Part of the issue for him was that unemployment grew tremendously in the mid-1980s. You know, at one point it was as high as 25%. Income declined. Economic growth was erratic. And I I read some some things. He gave an interview when he was very, very old, um, but kind of saying, you know, we did – we made good policies. We started new things, but it came at a price. Uh, and and that that left a, I don't want to say bitterness, but, um, it, you know, just a, a dissatisfaction with the way things worked out, even though he thought his policies were, were good. Um, some of the other things that happened, widespread privatization, reduction of tariffs, um, entered into GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was kind of a predecessor to NAFTA, and we'll talk about that in a second. The um, During his opposition, that National Action Party, PAN, became very popular, especially in northern Mexico. During 1983, PAN won the municipal elections in Chihuahua won nine of their largest municipalities, which held about 70% of the population. In October 1986, okay, October 1986, politicians from the pre-party announced the creation of the Democratic current within the pre. Okay? Initially, they said, hey, we're, we just we want to have an organization within the pre, and we want to have some clear rules about the selection of 
the party's next presidential candidate. The pre-party basically said, thank you for your input, but no. So as a result, the next year they left and formed the National Democratic Front, um, which was basically a group, a loose alliance of left-wing parties. 1987, here's where we get to our stuff a little bit. De La Madrid declared drug trafficking, quote, a national security problem, close quote, and he went about reorganizing Mexico's anti-drug policies, which included more financial and personal resources devoted to the anti um or anti-drug programming. In uh, 1987, they, they were the largest number of arrests for drug trafficking at any time in Mexican history. Of course, they had the, um, the Kiki Camarena incident in 1985 on his watch. And notwithstanding his pronounced or or his announcements and some of his action against the cartels, the investigation relating to Agent Camarena found that there were Mexican officials implicated in the case, right? You had Miguel Ibarra Herrera, the uh, past director of the MFJP. You had Miguel Aldana Ibarra, former director of Interpol, And so drug trafficking remained a big issue during the day. And what you had was, I think a lot of commentators would say that there was a dramatic disconnect between the policies of the administration, the policies and the actions of the mid-level bureaucrats, the Herreras, the Aldanas of the world, and then an even bigger disconnect at the local level. So the corruption got more extensive as you went down. So even if the president is saying certain things, if all the local MFJP officers are on the take, or most of them are, well, then, you know, you're not going to get very far. Election 1988 came... And, um, and it was a mess. Okay. It was an absolute mess. What I love is what initially happened is Cardenas was kind of in the lead and they had, um, a computer shutdown is what they said. And there was a phrase, Cayo el Sistema. The system crashed, and that is Mexico's hanging chads from you know Florida in in the presidential election. As a result, Carlos Salinas was declared the winner. the uh, The phrase "se cayó el sistema" sistema um, was a, a euphemism that still exists for electoral fraud. There were lots and lots and lots of um, complaints about the election, internal, external observers said massive electoral fraud. Nevertheless, Salinas was confirmed by the Chamber of Deputies as the winner, which is no surprise because the Chamber of Deputies was controlled by the PRI. National survey a, a, from 2012 said that... Um, of the respondents thought that the De La Madrid administration was very good or good. 26% average and 30% responded very bad or bad, which shows pretty much, you know, a, um, a wide range of opinion on De La Madrid looking back. So, 1988, Carlos Salinas de Gotari comes in. He was an economist and a politician, 60th president of Mexico from 1988 to 1984. Again, won the election because of fraud, 
or at least at a minimum, there was a significant perception that he was elected based on fraud. He, again, was an economist. So he continued the neoliberal free trade policies of De La Madrid, mass privatizations of state-run companies, reprivatization of many banks, Mexico's entry into NAFTA, which was really his calling card. I mean, that's the the thing that that he's known for. Negotiations with the right-wing opposition pan to try to recognize their victories in state and local elections in exchange for supporting Salinas' policies. Normalizations of of relations with the Catholic clergy and the adoption of a new currency. Um, Salinas, criticized by the left, who considered him illegitimate, and argued that his neoliberal policies continued the problems of the De La Madrid uh, administration, um, higher unemployment, uh, higher inflation, foreign ownership, which um, created many, many problems. Um, Some on the right, on the other hand, praised him more for being um, in favor of globalization, for modernizing the country, for increasing the international influence, especially economically, of Mexico. It is notable that Salinas was um or when he left office one month later they pretty much mexico had their great depression the worst economic crisis in mexico's history occurred shortly thereafter um his brother raul salinas de gotari um was arrested for ordering the assassination of somebody by the name of ruiz Massieu and was indicted on charges of drug trafficking. Salinas then left off or left the country and didn't return until 1989. He is generally regarded as the um, most unpopular foreign president of Mexico. One poll said that 73% of Mexican respondents had a negative image of him. As I mentioned earlier, um, his big calling card was the negotiation with the United States and NAFTA, or I mean, the United States and Canada to create NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Sorry, North American Free Trade Agreement came into effect January 1, 1994. What's interesting about this is NAFTA represented a significant change in Mexican policies and long-standing policies of economic nationalism, anti-Americanism. Proponents, of course, and I think we heard these arguments in the United States, saw as a way to secure jobs for exports, attract foreign investment, um, servicing the national debt, promote economic recovery. The change in policies, moving away from this economic nationalism, anti-Americanism, was controversial. And it was opposed by organized labor, many Mexican academics, many non-governmental organizations. And I think remembering that is really, really important. I, I... There is no doubt in my mind that between 1994, when NAFTA took effect, and today, the economic relationship between Mexico and the United States has changed. They become more interdependent. There is definitely more market availability for Mexican goods and products in the United States than there was. There are more companies in the Uh, from the United States, manufacturing in Mexico. So the trade has increased as a result of NAFTA. I don't think anyone can legitimately 
argue that. But, but the concerns that many in Mexico had about NAFTA, about that economic um, cooperation, and not just cooperation, but now, you know, you in some respects, you're, you're so closely aligned. That concerned many people before NAFTA came into effect, and I think it still exists today. And I had um, a number of discussions in a couple of different forums about, you know, um, Presidential candidate DeSantis is out there saying, well, we're going to go use the military and we're going to do certain things. And other people talking about, all right, we're going to, you know, they're going to use American forces to help go after the leaders, things of that nature. And some people in Mexico, I believe, think that that's a great idea. There are probably people in Mexico who actually wouldn't even mind seeing American forces in the country. I don't think the the leadership is ever going to allow that. But what I'm my point is, there are also many many people in Mexico who feared that, who worried about NAFTA, who worried about Americanism seeping into Mexico, that worried about uh, economic and territorial creep by. Americans and American companies who have a deep-seated concern and a fear of Mex- or of American intervention in Mexico, even if it's to deal with the cartels that they are against. Okay? And so if we don't recognize the history of some of this, and obviously the anti-American sentiment goes all the way back to the Mexican Revolution and before that. But NAFTA is a great, concrete, modern example of it. And the feelings that many in Mexico had about NAFTA that continues to this day and informs how both nations think about handling the cartel situation. That's why I think it's so important to walk through these things and understand them. All right. The third Mexican president we want to talk about is AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Born November 13, 1953, generally known by his initials, AMLO. He is the 65th president of Mexico, came into office December 1, 2018, he had been the head of government of Mexico City, now referred to, I believe, as the mayor of Mexico City, but he um, was the head of government of Mexico City from 2000 to 2005. He actually started off as a pre-member, 1976. He became a member of the pre in 1989. He left PRI, joined the Party of the Democratic Revolution, PRD, became that party's 1994 candidate for governor of Tabasco, which is the state from which he comes. And he was the the national leader of the PRD from 1996 to 1999. 2000, he was elected head of government, as I said, of Mexico City. His policies on crime, infrastructure, social spending made him a popular figure on the left. Remember, pre-center, center-right, this really is a movement, again, along with some of others, to, um, to move the country a little bit more left than pre had been. Um, Lopez Obrador was nominated as the presidential candidate for what they call, called the coalition for all, for the good of all coalition for the good of all 
during the 26, 2006 elections. Again, Lopez Obrador was essentially running against uh, Vicente Fox's protege, Felipe Calderon. All kinds of issues came up, recount, etc. Thousands of supporters marched in the streets for a recount. Lopez Obrador um, ends up holding a you know big massive cer- uh, ceremony in um, Mexico City's main square, declares himself as the legitimate president of a parallel government. You all know how parallel governments work. So Calderon is declared the winner. In 2012, Lopez Obrador ran as the PRD's candidate for the presidency. This time he finished second to the PRI's Enrique Peña Nieto, who was the uh, former governor of the state of Mexico. And every place I see him referred to as as the handsome former governor. So he must have been a good-looking dude. Um, Lopez Obrador finished ahead of the PAN candidate, the National Action Party, PAN. And um, again, he said, hey, election law has been violated by PRI. I'm a bad loser. I'm pissed off. And um, there was a recount of more than half of Mexico's polling places. Peña Nieto's victory was upheld. Disenchanted with the support that he got, um, Lopez Obrador founded a new political party, the National Regeneration Movement, um, which in in Spanish, forgive me here, Move Miento Regeneración Nacional or Morena, M-O-R-E-N-A. Um, As the 26th election campaign approached, um, Lopez Obrador staked out a position as the Moreno party leader. Uh, He emphasized his opposition to NAFTA, and he also criticized Peña Nieto's decision to open up Mexican industry or the energy industry to private investment. In the 2018 election, he easily won victory. I mean, it was a landslide, beating Ricardo Anaya Cortez of PAN, Jose Antonio Meade, the technocratic candidate of the PRI, and an independent, all of whom conceded within two hours of the polls closing. Lopez Obrador's Election marked the first time in nearly 90 years that the Mexican president had not been elected from either pre or the pan parties. During his campaign, um, he moved a little bit to the center. Not much different than you see a lot of um, candidates in the U.S. You know, you run left or right, depending on your party, to get your nomination. And then in the general election, you tend to tack a little bit more to the center. At least that was traditional. May not have been the case in the last couple of elections. His message focused on several things, primarily narrowing the wage gap um, and the wealth gap improving the lives of the poorest citizens, reducing the violence um, that had resulted in the highest annual murder total in two decades in 2017. And as with virtually every president before him, eradicating the corruption that was said to be endemic in Mexican society. He declared, as we all know, um, an end to the drug war and announced that he was wished to shift away from capturing drug lords to reducing the violence and paying more attention to health and socioeconomic concerns. Despite this, 
the first year in office we saw, and or the first year of AMLO's office, um, murder rate increased dramatically. As a result, Lopez Obrador sent the newly reformed militarized National Guard to fight crime. We can have a, a whole bunch of different arguments and questions about, um, you know, whether the Army's control of security has been good or bad. You know, he, he initially was far more of the hugs, not gunshots policy that really didn't fly well with um, the security forces. You know, people um, at the military level, the Marines, the Navy, the, the National Guard, you know, that didn't resonate with them. Um, you know, of course, there were all kinds of issues. You had um, homicides. There was a, a decrease for a while, but the the cartel activity was continuing and the inter-cartel violence has dramatically increased. Um, we can go through all this. The, there's a whole variety of statistics of things that, that happened. Um, you know, we've seen kind of a, a shift right with respect to the cartels during his during his administration there was the you know the disaster of the first time that um Ovidio Guzman was picked up then he was released then he was later you know captured Carlo Quintero was captured um there've been some successes if you want to talk about them um, and and kind of a shift away from the idea of don't go after the capos, don't go after the heads. Uh, at the same point in time, as we have talked about repeatedly on on the, you know this podcast, the fighting, the inner cartel fighting between CJNG, CDS, in a variety of locations, the increased violence in Coloma, uh, the increased violence in a number of Mexican states and cities, you know, the increased violence and apparent battles between CDN and maybe elements of CDN, CJNG, CDS in uh, areas such as Nuevo Laredo, the battles for Tijuana, uh, you know, so some good, some bad with AMLO. Obviously, a lot of people in the United States thinking that he has done less than he should have to fight the cartels. Certainly has not cooperated with um, the United States in a, a level that some might like. If you read my newsletter, there's a great thing in there. Um Presidential candidate DeSantis, Governor DeSantis from Florida, was on uh, Fox News this week, confronted with polling that continues to show him far behind Donald Trump. And in fact, most of the polling seeming to indicate that since he formally declared as a candidate, his numbers have gone down, not up. One of the things he said is one of the reasons for that is because AMLO keeps criticizing him because he knows that DeSantis will take a stronger stance on uh, the border and on cartels than would either Trump or the whoever the Democratic nominee ends up being, most likely President Biden. So I just thought it was hysterical, though, that his polling numbers are because AMLO doesn't like him. So where do we go um, from here with respect to the Mexican government and politics? In the June 2021 midterm elections, the uh, Lopez Obrador coalition lost some seats in the lower house. Uh, they still have a majority, but they weren't able to secure kind of a super majority in the Congress, 
main opposition was a coalition of the three traditional parties in Mexico, the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD. Mentioned earlier that it used to be that the president of Mexico basically handpicked their successors. Well, the party for AMLO is not doing that this year. Instead, they're having kind of a... um, Almost like a primary, but it's not really a primary. It's more akin, I think, to the Iowa caucuses where they're they're going to have um, some polling and things to try to f- determine who the next candidate should be. There are two primary candidates. There is the Mexico City Mary, mayor, uh, a former Mexico City mayor. Claudia Scheinbaum, and then former foreign minister Marcelo Ebrard. They are essentially tied in some recent polling. Had long been reported that former Mexico City Mayor Claudia Scheinbaum was AMLO's preference. Nevertheless, you know, you have this close race with um, the former foreign minister. They're going to hold a three-month internal race to pick the successor, which, again, is a pivot from um, the way it has been. Here's something interesting. So in these polls that recently came out, and, and polling in Mexico is a little bit different than in the United States. It's less well-entrenched. Um not saying that it's not that it's any better or worse, but you know we have long had um, polling groups and and things and, and internal polls. Mexico's done that a little bit differently. It's it, it, again in part because the races were were a little bit different. But there are now a couple of groups in Mexico that are really taking the polling very seriously, putting some. Um, scientific, increased scientific methodology to it. Polling is always going to have some vagaries. Sometimes there's going to be better polls and less better polls, but you can learn from them. So anyways, these polls came out, showed we've got this near dead tie between Scheinbaum and Ebrard. They also asked a couple of other things. Um. 50%, 50% of those surveyed said that security is the country's main problem, followed next by the economy at almost half of that. And 7 out of 10 in the polling considered or thought that criminal organizations have grown more violent and larger and more influential. And 53% called for a change in strategy. So it's it's a little bit interesting because AMLO in Mexico remains incredibly popular. There's almost no doubt that the Moreno candidate, the Morena candidate is going to be the next president of Mexico, whether that's Scheinbaum or Ebrard. Nevertheless, despite that popularity, there is at the fundamental level a um, concern over the strategy with respect to the cartels. And again, 53% in this one poll calling for a change in strategy. So in Mexico right now, you have um, a few major parties. Okay? So you have the PAN, just center right, maybe leaning a little bit further right. So a little bit more, um, little bit more right wing. You have the PRI, 
again, founded 1929, PANS founded 1939. These are the long-standing parties. PRI remains um, a little bit more center to center right, but I'd, I'd put them more in the center. Then you have the PRD, center left, with some very significant um, left-wing ideology and factions. There is a um, a Labor Party, which is very left-wing, democratic socialism, has some representation in both the, um, the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. You have a Green Party, which actually, though, um, unlike in lots of locations, this is actually a center-right party, has about the same amount as the Labor Party. Um, each of them has... Uh, five or six senators, and um, you know, someplace in the order of forty deputies. There's a center-left movement um, party called the Citizens Movement, and then you have the Morena Party, and um, that's anti-neoliberalism, anti-globalization, um, or at least changes in globalization. Populism, nationalism, that's the AMLO party. Center left, maybe leaning left wing. It continues to dominate in the um, the Senate. It's got 59 senators out of 128. Um, the next biggest is the PAN at 25. It also has 201 of the, the deputies. Pan has 114, Pre has 69. So again, it has a significant um, lead on everybody else, but it doesn't necessarily have a, a majority. So that creates all of the normal issues with respect to getting something done. There are a plethora of other parties in um, Mexico. You have a couple of different communist parties that aren't allowed to uh, participate in elections because they're not officially registered as parties. These are very far left. There's a socialist party. Um, there's a couple of socialist parties that are far left. There's something else called a progressive social networks, which is a little bit more center left. And then you have a couple of others that are out there. Force for Mexico, Nationalist Front of Mexico, which is a far, far right. The um, National Sin Archist Union, far, far right. Again, can't participate in elections. There's a Socialist Convergence Policy, our party, um, a National Hope Party. Mexico's first party, far, far right. And um, so you have all of these out there as well, which creates um, at a national level, they have very little influence anywhere. Some of these non-registered parties do have more influence at the local levels, depending on exactly where they are. That can particularly be the case in the major cities. Mexico City, Guadalajara, um, other places, Monterrey, where their support, these non-registered parties, can throw their support to one of the official parties in a smaller election and have a greater impact. So, we're at 59 minutes. Was going to talk about some of the... Um, the interesting results from some polling and some data that came from um, this group called Transparency International, and then there's a couple of other groups, and talking about the corruption in Mexico. I'm going to save that for next week, and what I may do is follow up on a couple of things that I omitted from this discussion about the PRI and Mexican politics. We'll talk about that and then follow up with Mexican corruption. Again, for the purpose of analyzing and understanding why certain things are happening the way they are in Mexico and how we can use that information 
to think about what's going to happen in the future, maybe anticipate it, and perhaps even think about how it could be influenced. So that is our goal going forward. One other thing, I bet there's somebody out there saying, excuse me, Jack, you talked about a lot of important people in Mexican politics. I wasn't completely bored to death, thank you, but you did not mention one person at all. You did not mention Manuel Bartlett Diaz, and I didn't, but we will next week. And part of the reason I didn't is because Manuel Bartlett Diaz never became the president of Mexico. He is undoubtedly the most important, influential, and powerful politician in Mexico, probably in Mexican history, who did not become president of Mexico. We're going to talk about him next week as well. So next week will be a a little bit of a, a mishmash of things, all focusing in the same direction, all of which then allow us to go back and answer some of the unanswered questions about the Camarena case. See, there is a methodology here. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope I did it in a way that made sense and that you could follow. Uh, And I'll try to do that again next week. If you have comments, questions, concerns, bitches, moans, gripes, anything, please, please reach out to me. If you want my newsletter, LlewellynWriting at gmail.com. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care.